All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fucksters? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. How's it going? How, how's your Monday turning out? Did you have today off? What's happening? Do you work at a bank or a government? Do you work at a library? Are you having a nice three-day weekend from your bank job or the PO? Do you work for the PO? Anyway, I hope you're all well. I'm back. Dean Del Rey and myself were down in Florida, flew out Thursday night, Orlando, got to Orlando like 11, 11.30 at night. Our hotel was actually, I believe, within the theme park. I think our hotel was part of the Universal theme park. Um, I'm not sure, but I, I'm pretty sure it was owned by Universal. I, tr- I tried to choose the most grown-up looking of the hotels. There was, no, um, uh, there was no theme to the hotel, no pirate theme, no, no fun and games, no animals. It was the grown-up one, kind of, but it was right within the park. I have no sense of Orlando. I don't know if it's a real city. I think it's just some sort of corporate mirage that people go to have fun on. I don't I don't know what it is. And I'll be honest with you, I'll say it out of the gate here. The audience was were tremendous. Great audiences. I think I know why. I'll go into that. But despite that, my opinions of Florida have not changed at all. Shit went down. Weird shit went down. Nothing violent or hostile or even painful. But Florida is Florida, and if you, if, if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. All right? Now, my special End Times Fun will launch globally on Netflix Tuesday, March 10th. Mark Marin End Times Fun Global on Tuesday, March 10th. All right? That's happening. These are the last four dates of this set. Before the special, I'm doing like an hour 40, hour 45. Generally, special is like 73 minutes. So there's something else to whatever I'm doing right now. Extended mix. But these are the final dates coming up this week. This Thursday in Portland, Maine at the State Theater, February 20th. Providence, Rhode Island on Friday, February 21st at the uh, Columbus Theater. I believe that's uh, pretty close to sold out. New Haven, Connecticut at College Street Music Hall, Saturday, February 22nd, and Huntington, New York at the Paramount, Sunday, February 23rd. You can go to wtfpod.com slash tour for a link to all the venues. So this is it. And I think after this tour, I'm going to change my my entire disposition uh, as I head into every aspect of my life. What does that even fucking mean? Sometimes I just let things keep going out of my mouth that uh, have no bearing on anything. D- bad food. We had bad food in Florida. We were in the theme park, I think. I believe our hotel was a ride. I believe a family, several families came through my room to look at the sleeping comedian and waited for me to be funny. Not, it's not a great ride. It's not, it's, it's not even a haunted house, really. I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of like, a, it's, yeah, it's a, the sad reality hotel. Yeah, that's the ride. Sad reality house. So, look, Ronan Farrow is on the podcast today. We talked about how he grew up, who he grew up with, his family, the journalism he's done, his education, uh, some other stuff. You you know, I tried to get at who he is, 
I did not pop the Sinatra question because if you want the answer to that, you can get it elsewhere. That's all I'm saying. It's out there. The answer is like, he's not answering it. But we talked for a long time about a lot of different stuff and I was really sort of trying to sort of get a sense of who this guy is. And I think that over the the swath of the of the conversation, you do get a sense of that. But uh, Ronan Farrow is on the show. He'll be here soon. Uh, he's got this book out, his best-selling book, obviously, Catch and Kill. It's available wherever you get books. He also did the Catch and Kill podcast, which uh, just did its final episode last week, so you can listen to the entire series wherever you listen to your podcasts. So as you know, I was nervous about Orlando. I'm not going to shit entirely on Orlando, but I have no sense of what Orlando is because we were there very quickly. We, uh, you know, we took a, we drove over onto the theme park, onto the city walk, behind the scenes where the people working live their life, pulled up to the Hard Rock uh, live venue, beautiful venue actually, out of the 1,200, sold good. Must have been over 900 there, beautifully filled up. And uh, great crowd. Just a lovely crowd on all levels. And it, it, I was so excited. And I realized that, look, man, I don't go down there. I've never been there. I have people down there. I All of them came. That's all I'm saying. And I'm, I was happy they were there. We had a lovely show up until a woman just started singing loudly some sort of song that is sung at soccer games. I don't know what it was, some sort of chant. It's an instrumental thing. It just happened out of nowhere. I don't know what provoked it. It went on for a while. Uh, I tried. I drew attention to it, obviously. It was distracting. She was singing loudly. to the, Everyone noticed. And I tried to shut her up. And uh, I was um, empathetic with the fact that she probably ha- was drunky and needed help shutting up, but uh, never got hostile. And uh, I don't know what happened or how it was dealt with or what, what snapped in her head, but it, it, it stopped. And, but it was an interesting moment. And I don't invite those moments, but if they happen, always kind of exciting, man. That's like hands-on comedy. That's the big room babysitting job. You don't always want to do big room babysitting, but occasionally you have to. And ultimately, all in all, great show in Orlando. Great people would go back to that venue and also to that town, maybe spend an extra day there to get beyond the confines of that park and maybe get into the confines of the other park, the Disney area. Maybe I don't know how to have fun. Maybe I should uh, you know, get, get involved with water parks a little more often. There's a huge water park. There's roller coasters. Maybe I'm too old for it. Dino's back is bad. My neck is bad. We're not, I don't, I think our roller coaster days are over. But Orlando was good. Good people there. Thank you for coming. Did not change my opinion of Florida. Actually gave me more resolve around it, I think, to be honest with you. Dean's mom, Del Rey, the matriarch of the Del Rey, the mommy of the Del Rey, came to the show in uh, Orlando. Lovely lady. Knows how to have a fun time. Sweet. Uh, just like, you never know. You never know what you're going to get when you meet someone's mom. But it, it all made sense. And they get along great. And he hadn't seen her in a long time. And she had never seen him do comedy. And that can be a tough night. You know, because you, you, early on, he's not really early on, but if it's the first time she's seen him, there is a possibility of chokage. Could choke in front of the parents. Oh, you know, some people choke for years doing the comedy in front of their family. But Dean nailed it. And it was a good, a good venue to for that to happen. Excellent. Good times. 
ate a hamburger, cheeseburger, Hard Rock Cafe cheeseburger, and some salmon, and some onion rings. Okay, so moving on. Next day, we get up, got to get out. We had It's only like an hour and a half to Tampa, but there was no fucking way. There's no reason, no reason to hang around Orlando. Got jacked at the Dunkin' Donuts coffee and headed to uh, to Tampa. And we got to Tampa in the early afternoon. And we we're like, well, let's just take a walk around Tampa. What? Downtown Tampa. It's Look, again, I don't want to judge, but it looks like it's it, it, it halfway happened. It looked like there was an attempt at some point in time to kind of make it hip, to do something with downtown. And it might have happened for a month or two or maybe a year, but it's definitely on the... Uh, on the other side of that. So we drive in and there's literally hundreds of people wandering around the streets in costumes, uh, looking at their phones in small groups. And we couldn't fucking figure out what it was. I, I didn't know if it was a sporting event that had like, you know, a dozen teams involved or what, but they were dressed in period costumes. Some of the men were wearing suspenders, smoking pipes, look like the thirties or the forties. I don't know what, it, and then we asked somebody, it was some sort of global app driven clue game where people just wander around trying to solve a murder mystery on their app with hundreds of other board game nerds, I guess. So that was sort of a weird entry into Tampa. So then we got to the hotel, and the Straz Center was pretty fucking nice. Great crowd. Dean did good. I got out there. It's going well, but there's a problem up front. Some more weirdness. There's a couple sitting right up front, stage right, on the aisle. They're bickering. And I can hear it, but it's difficult. I'm on stage. They're right there. I can hear it. The people even 10 rows back can't hear it. 900 people can't hear it, but it's fucking driving me nuts. I get involved. What's up? And they they won't talk, and they look cranky. They both, they look like they're fighting, and now you know, they're mad at each other. So I do some more of my set, and all of a sudden the audience gets weird. I don't know what's going on. Then I look down, and I realize the man in that couple is standing against the lip of the stage looking at her like they're having a thing he's up visible to the rest of the goddamn crowd and i'm like what what is happening are you fucked up what's going on and there clearly is a problem and no one's dealing with it security is not anywhere to be found which is fine i tell them look if a if it's just heckling and it's good spirited i can deal with it but you should know when to step in but this guy's standing up and I'm like, what's going on? And then she's like, well, you know, he's drunk. And I'm like, all right, well, I got a show to do here. And there's 949, 48 people who want, to do a sh- want me to do a show. And now I got to deal with your marital problems. And she's like, well, I just, you know, it's, it's, I'm just mad. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, I'm not drunk. I'm straight, man. And he was fucked up, that guy. And she goes, I bought him these tickets for Valentine's Day. And I'm like, this is getting deep. And look, you got to go. You got to go talk. You got to go resolve whatever the issue is outside. And they're both, you know, sitting there. You know, he's standing there. They're being stubborn. And I'm like, please, you know, just go, you know, take a walk and talk to each other. And she's like, all right, come on. And literally pushes her man out of the room, up the aisle, out of the room. And I was so relieved that I, I, it was a successful mediation. She stepped in. She took care of it. It would have been awful if the guy was belligerent and had to be walked out by security, or they both did. And we went on with the show. But that was uh, that was Tampa. That was Tampa. Had a couple of wooers, which I don't love, as some of you know. But the um, 
But I was very happy. I want to you know, express some gratitude for that woman managing her fucking drunk-ass husband. It did set the show into a weird zone, but I think it pulled out okay. And then right after that happens, there are two empty seats right on the aisle in the front row. The guy who was sitting next to them and goes, can my, can my daughter move down from the balcony? And that's when the people from the venue step in to tell him to shut up. I'm like, look, he's just asking a question. You missed your opportunity to do some crowd management here. I had to do so, another evening of big room babysitting. And I'm like, okay, yeah, man. All right, sure. Hey, hey would this guy's daughter come down, sit next to your old man? And it turns out I get an email, beautiful email from that guy the next day, this morning, saying how what I did was amazing because he'd gotten the tickets early on for he and his wife, I think is how it went. And his daughter, who was leaving for college or somewhere, leaving the house for good, she was the last of four kids to be leaving the next day. You know, they all went out to my show, but she couldn't sit with him. And I, I brought her down there and and it was a real moment. It was the last night the family was together before she moved out and they were empty nesters. And it was a very touching email. He's very grateful. And he said that I, you know, I really made a difference in their life somehow, that this memory was created and I got a new fan with the daughter, which I guess I, I, I guess that's good. I, you know, I, I hope, <laughs> I, don't, I never know, man. You know, people bring their kids. I'm like, you sure? She was 18. I mean, she's no youngster, but like, all right. I, I tell you, there is something going on with this set it gets a little heavy it gets a little dark it gets a little dirty and i just i don't always know like because i see i've grown up fans you know i don't i don't attract any meatheads not too many yahoos you know that guy got drunk but i i don't know what happened there and there were a couple wooers and one the singer of the soccer chants but but generally speaking grown-ups I, I saw some at the hotel people who flew in for the evening to stay over to watch my show and they were excited and i'm like oh man it, Am I, am I too filthy? Am I too flawed? Am I too broken? Am I too weird? Am I too not entertaining for these folks that made this trip? I'm always sort of thinking about that. Like, I hope that it worked out for the people that traveled. And I hope that it did. I hope that it did. So that was, that was Florida. Again, I'm still wary of Florida, but I know I have people down there, and I know they wanted me to come, and they were happy I came, and I'm happy I, I went. And I'm happy I was able to give you guys a show, you people, you Floridians who enjoy me. All right. And I think you all came out. Everyone down in the Orlando, Tampa area who likes me showed up and thank you for doing that. So Ronan Farrow, I was nervous. I ran into him at the Vanity Fair party and I told him he could come on and somehow that happened immediately. But, you know, I didn't know, I don't know anything about that guy. I know the work he's done and, you know, the investigative journalism he's done has made a, a, a very huge impact on our culture. And, uh, you know, he is the son of uh, somebody that I grew up loving and, and had to turn my brain around on that because of uh, his behavior, uh, as did Ronan. And I didn't know, you know, how personal he would get, but I think we got a little personal and he's a very bright, he's an overly smart guy uh, and a great uh, journalist. You're going to hear me talking to, uh, to Ronan Farrow about his book, Catch and Kill, uh, which is available wherever you get books and also the Catch and Kill podcast, which just uh, did its final episode last week. And you can get that wherever you get the podcast and, and about some personal stuff and about some thoughts and opinions on things and whatnot. But uh, this is me. And uh, he's almost like from another planet intelligent, this guy. This is me talking to Ronan Farrow. 
Basically, anyone who has ever worked with me knows that I'm incredibly <laughs> annoying to work with in this. I mean, I yeah. micromanage everything. I get into the... On the audiobook, I was, like, literally in the Pro Tools session, like, riding the fader on the different music cues that I had picked. And oh, do you, you had music cues in your audiobook? Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. The audiobook also, I just... You so, read it all. I read it all. So much of the audience, uh, I think especially younger listeners, yeah. are experiencing books that way. I listen to a lot of books now on Audible. Do you? Mm-hmm. I don't. You kind of take something away? I don't listen. I don't know where everyone finds the time, man. I, I just don't. It's not a matter of taking it away. Oh, so you're not reading the physical books either. You're... I'm trying to read the physical books. That's usually what I do if I'm on an airplane or something. I, I've finished a couple books lately. I guess doing audio books would be nice, but I tend to like to think. Mm-hmm. I, I, t- I don't know. Like, I don't know. What, I listen to music when I go on exercise things, and I don't. I just don't know where people find all the time. Th- thinking uh, and, and you're busy living with my own thoughts it seems terrifying. So I listen to tons of music, and uh, yeah, I mean, I'm being facetious. No, but. I know. No, I listen to tons of music too. And my own thoughts can be uh, awful and terrifying. But uh, you, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know what I'm doing with my time. I feel like I'm busy, too busy to take in a lot of shit. I got to really make time to watch things, to listen to things. Don't you? Yeah, it's it's impossible. And I feel like often I'm drowning with my current schedule. You know, if I'm juggling a few stories and yeah. then there's a podcast and there's a lot going on. And um, very can't. often I'm just like numb at the end of the day. But, you know, one thing that I can be reliably dependent on for is procrastination. Right. So I wrote two books in back-to-back years. There was the farm policy one about the collapse of the State Department. And I interviewed all the living secretaries of state. And that was 2017? A- 18. 18. But and, de- so the, the current collapse of the State Department. Right. But involved a lot of years of research. And yeah. my, my PhD research fed into it. It was a harrowing process. So it got you were, canceled at a certain point. But you were working on a State Department book before Trump. Uh, yes, and then it became a State Department book about the Trump era. Because he gutted it. He gutted it, and, and it actually uh, fit with uh, a recurrent pattern that was not really about uh, political party. Yeah. It, it also occurred under Clinton, for instance. Right. He he sent Warren Christopher uh, to the Hill, then Secretary of State, to demand these radical budget cuts and really sounded almost exactly like Rex Tillerson doing Trump's bidding on the Hill saying, you know, we want to slice and dice the State Department. So it it is kind of an act of political expedience or uh, cowardice that knows no party and that we see happen over and over again. And and there's a tale of decades of damage that ensues when we sort of strip mine our various embassies. We don't have people in the room to say, hey, maybe we negotiate our way out of this problem instead of just the military solution. But, you know, I did that book and was like, great, no more books for a long time. But then... I before it was even done, I had already gotten into the catch and kill this this current book. So I was just like insensate with books in my life and book pressures sure. and being and or, writing and writing and and writing is the most tortured thing. It's the worst, man. <laughs> yeah, it's the worst. And it really it like just destroyed my life for years and years. But I will tell you, but you do it. You push through. You do it. You push through. Is it easier to write when you're writing this kind of like investigative nonfiction, you know, sort of you know these putting these things together than it would be to write, say, a memoir? Well, both of these books actually have qualities of both. Yeah. But but the and I'll I'll get to that in a second because that's interesting. But the the point I was going to make is my procrastinating, which made these books extra agonizing because yeah. I was constantly a year or years over deadline yeah. and in a blind panic as yeah. I was writing, uh, did have one collateral benefit, which is I, like you, like everyone, yeah. had not had a lot of space to be a reader, which was one of my first loves. 
And then in the name of having convinced myself that I'd be a better writer if I were reading yeah. interesting authors' voices all yeah. the time, uh, I just decided, especially for this last book, I am going to just read a shitload of books. Yeah. And it was like while I was doing the structure of this last one. Fiction, was, nonfiction, didn't matter? Um, uh, a mix, but almost all fiction for oh, Catch yeah. and Kill. Because Catch and Kill is so in- aggressively an investigative nonfiction work that I wanted to cut against that stylistically. Yeah. Um, so while I was developing the outline of it, yeah, you know, there's a nonfiction repertorial part of it. This gets at your question about yeah. does it make it easier or harder, uh, which was a long process of compiling a Bible of here's what happened every day in the real world. So the book is really about the obstacles you faced in pursuing your investigative reports of all the men that you you sort of investigated. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. Uh, a series of one clue leading to another, one story leading to another, from the Weinstein story to the Trump hush payment stories. Um, to Moonves, to Schneiderman, the, or Schneiderman to Moonves? Moonves and Schneiderman play a, more of a secondary role, uh-huh. uh, mostly because the book had to come down from a thousand-page epic to something right. that would actually be digestible. But I, I wanted the structure to, I mean, first priority, it had to be bulletproof because there were yeah. going to be... Uh, very, very moneyed and powerful interests descending on this thing, trying to discredit it, as is the case with any of my stories. Yeah. So, I, you know, I hired the, one of the heads of fact-checking at The New Yorker. We scrutinized every single sentence, and it's it's really, it's held up um, in the face of exactly the kind of shit How long has it been out? Like, less than a year, though, right? Not- yeah, uh, four months now. Now, okay, so what were you going to say about... Uh... Well, so part of the process was, was figuring out the outline, yeah. which had to be true first but also I wanted to you know have dramatic sizzle sure and mercifully the actual facts after I spent those months laying out a bible of you know a thousand pages of here's what happened every day backed up by the documents and the texts and the emails then it actually did it had like a save the cat screenplay structure (laughs) that's you know all the the good guys became bad guys at like right around the end of the second act Uh kind of stuff but it's still I wanted to seed the clues for the reader in a way that made dramatic sense so I did a lot of reading of like Agatha Christie going back to <laughs> really? Dashiell Hammett you know really? um, yeah I did like all the hard-boiled detective uh, novels even up to and including you know the the kind of the detective procedurals JK Rowling did under a pseudonym right just so like seeing what was out there to cru- to to sort of uh, fortify your pacing right exactly to get yeah. the and, I, and that was a big part of it part of coming down from a, a thousand page initial draft to a uh, uh, 401 was just making sure it moved like greased lightning or whatever. That's great. Um, but but then Good when thinking. I was... thinking. I hope. I hope it... I mean, the reviews seem to reflect that it worked and, and people have been getting something out of it. But then stylistically, as I was actually writing for voice, I was reading a lot of the postmodernists. I was reading... Uh, you know, Which guys? Like uh, David Foster Wallace, oh, yeah. uh, Pynchon, yeah. Franzen even, um, Cynthia Ozick. Uh-huh. Uh, some Philip for Roth tone? for t- <laughs> for Philip well, Roth. Which Philip Roth? Um, I mean, I, I read a little Portnoy's complaint. Yeah. I wanted, I wanted to, um, I wanted to be a little zany, oh, a little okay. funny. So hence, like the the yeah. pension, hence right. the Roth. Right. Um. So yeah, I bounced around a lot. I I must have read. Do you think thirty actually, books? But are you, while I wrote this book, but were you was I, I can understand structurally investigating, you know, uh, mystery writing. 
or or that kind of builder true crime writing but uh but humorous writing do you not have uh, faith in your your ability well it's not it's more than just you know um comedic timing it's like the texture of interesting voices bouncing around sure. in your brain uh-huh. and or by the way that this is all a ramp up to the point of the story which is i basically devised an excuse to procrastinate more mm-hmm. and uh and found myself reading more than i ever have as like just a consumer layperson because yeah. I, I finally had a professional excuse to right. be a reader uh, which, you know, my publisher will hate hearing this because they were like, where is the draft? <laughs> where is it? <laughs> you're, you're reading Philip Roth. All right. I was reading great books. <laughs> so like, like looking at your life, it's weird because I, I was you know trying to get a handle on it. It's a lot. There's a well, lot going on in there. Right. You know, <laughs> like things I'm familiar with, things that, you know, resonate or, or have had an impact on me personally in different ways uh, that, you know, was your immediate life. Um, but th- it, it does feel... That most of it was sort of haunted by by events, but like, how often do you talk to your mom? Are you guys pretty close? Yeah, we're, we are pretty close. I mean, like, I think almost all moms, it, her narration of this would be that I never call and it's not enough. Well, yeah, I'm, but, I always wonder about with that with my mom. How often are we supposed to call? How her? how often do you call your mom? Well, now, like, uh, my mom's like getting old, and like, I try to call, I try to talk to her once a week, just even if it's just to say hi. I think that's right. I think we should be all calling our moms more. <laughs> How often do you talk to her? We we probably talk around once a week, maybe Mm. twice a week. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I will say still in a moment of crisis or stress, like she's still one of my first calls. Really? Yeah. And See, that's different than me. I would never call my mom. Really? Oh, because she'll just stress you out more? (laughs) Well, I don't know. She won't know what to do. But you find comfort in it. I I do. You know, my mom is someone who's really ethical and um, thoughtful. Yeah. She's very smart. I, I'm fascinated by her life story too. She's she's a hell of an interview subject. She, you no know, she, kidding. Like I mean, like real show business stuff. Yeah, early and on. grew up in this kind of golden age of Hollywood. You know, her mom, mom was Jane in the Tarzan movies. And her, da- and her dad was a huge director, Oscar winning director, writer. It's crazy. Wrote around the world in eighty days. But died pretty young, right? Died of alcoholism. Mm. I mean, I guess a heart attack technically. Sure. But the family always says he died of the drink. You know? Right. <laughs> As we say in our Irish families, how many of them arced out? How many? How much of that transfer? How much of that generationally moved into your mom? Uh, it seems to avoid uh, it. Addiction, you mean specifically? Yeah. Uh, my mom has avoided it. I think many of her siblings have struggled. Yeah. Uh, my mom it seems to not have that at all, and I actually, I think I don't have it at all. You yeah, know, as someone who has a lot of loved ones and friends who struggle with addiction, a lot of sober friends. Um, you know, I, I know what to look for and I know my, my relationship with habit forming substances and it's just, it's never something that has had that kind of hold on me. But, but it does seem like you, you are able to, like, I, I found that, but if you, and this is a generation, but if you're the child of alcoholics, Mm -hmm. that either you're going to be that or you're going to be a very vigilant control freaky kind of person. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I am a a vigilant control freaky kind of person. Maybe that's how it translates. I don't know that she is. Mm. I think, you know, my mom, what I see in her childhood, it's really interesting. She she still has, like, all of these old journals and notebooks from yeah. when she was seven, eight, nine years old. Oh, wow. And in them are these incredibly intricate sketches of, like, Christ on the cross and the crown of thorns. Yeah, Catholic and stuff. Just more Catholic than you could possibly believe. You know, yeah. uh, her... T- in in perfect calligraphy testimonials of going to lords and like bathing right, in holy yeah. water, and oh, wow. all all of these um, just signs of being incredibly devout in a way that was never a part of my life. And and on top of that, I think she was like 
raised for a long time by nuns. She like went off to boarding school in England. Oh, and, yeah. You know, has all these stories of getting wrapped across the knuckles with rulers. And yeah, yeah. Clearly, then she was also, you know, a hippie in the '60s, right. and and was not as devout. But I I do see in her this foundation of the kind of hair shirt. The only thing that matters is the greater good Catholic philosophy. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's a lot of uh, great and a lot of very not great <laughs> Catholic philosophies that we've yeah. seen in the news cycle in the last few years. Um, but I think she took something not uncomplicated, not unproblematic, but fundamentally pretty good from it. I mean, a real spirit of public service in Which a way you... that I, I, I don't know that I always rise to. I mean, she is she is very selfless. But but it inspired you, I mean, obviously. Right. I, that's, that's, again, an astute way to frame it. I think I don't quite rise to it, but like I'm not going to adopt 10 special needs kids. But I, I do <laughs> aspire to it and... <laughs> And I am inspired by it. Well, yeah, I mean, the service is you know, a fairly broad. I mean, you know, yeah, you don't have to adopt ten special needs kids, <laughs> but but the idea of service and the importance of selfless service is, you know, either you got it or you don't. Right. I, I do. I believe, you know, that it is appropriate to have a little voice in your head at all times saying, like, "Hey, are you making the decision that is not just right for you, but also has some benefit for the bigger world?" And I don't always make the right choice in that respect, but I do have the little voice there. So like you're growing up and the the number of children that you're related to and, and half related to is a lot. Yeah. So when you're born, you've already got a couple of half brothers uh, that are half brother and a half sister that are what? They're they're like 18 already. I have... Um, do you know I, all of them? Yeah. She, so... <laughs> That's a really good question. Uh, but, you know, it's a fair question because the answer is only to a varying extent, right? When you have an age span of my oldest siblings are around 50 now and my youngest sister is in her early 20s. But like, so, so okay, so your mom was married to Sinatra for a while, but mm-hmm. Andre Previn yes. was like- Classical that was, music conductor. Right, but that was- a they had a few kids. Yeah, right? they, had, they had a few kids. They adopted yeah. together as well. So I had both half siblings and uh, a bunch of adopted siblings by the time I was born, and then there were further adoptions after me. It's it's insane, and then deaths as well. Yeah, yeah, real heartbreak, tragedy. I mean, my childhood. It's interesting. Maybe it obviously different kind of life story in your case, but maybe you also deal with just having a public profile and feeling uh, a fair amount of pressure to really frame your narrative in terms of the privilege that comes with that. You know, I I try to be sensitive to the fact that I've had a lot of open doors. There's lots of wonderful opportunities that were built into my my life and even my childhood. But it is also true that my childhood was about a lot of pain and trauma and literal death and destruction and, you know, crimes, sexual assault. And there was stuff swirling around me that was some real shit. That's what like that's why I thought haunted because like even reading it, you know, because like you like Woody Allen was your dad. Yeah, in in ethical terms and in legal terms. And, you know, that becomes a very complicated conversation precisely because he, in his defenses of himself for over the molestation allegations, um, very often turns to kind of these tropes about, you know, what I did within that family, including sleeping with and marrying my older sister. Yeah. matters less because there were adopted siblings involved, you know, right. that he, he, he invokes 
I, I was a rationalization. Bio- right. There's a rationalization based on the, yeah. the lack of biological right. ties, which is just so inappropriate right. and incorrect and not the way the law works, not right. the way basic ethics work in my mind. But I guess my question is, like, do you remember a, a, a time where he was your father before the haunting begins? Before the... Yeah. Yeah. You know, I never had a bad relationship with him early on. Um, we're talking about the first six, seven years of my life. Yeah. It then became fraught because... I was like a pawn in a court case. So right. there, so, there these... so what happens is the the timeline is you're five or six. Yeah. And what's revealed is your sister's uh, molestation and and your father's affair with Sunni. Right. Right. At the same time. Well, it's that actually becomes pivotal too. It's really interesting. A lot yeah. of my work now as an adult yeah. has touched on these themes of how do powerful, either wealthy or famous or influential people. Um, manipulate the news cycle and people's understanding of it. Well, this is interesting because it's almost like um, it's almost like a superhero origin story. <laughs> is that you know you're six years old, your your sister reveals this to the public and to you at that point yeah. in time. As you get older and process it, you know you realize that for you and for it, from all indications, it's true, right? And then and then sort of like how what what that represents is because your father was insulated by this. You know all these people that spent their lives protecting him. Yeah, that and and it was impenetrable. Other than you know journalism and what your sister said and what you believe, he still hasn't you know paid any price for it. Yep. So that that injury of of, of betrayal and and uh, just outright trauma, right? Uh, you know, sets you on this course. <laughs> And look, it's it's uh, an irresistible narrative ex post facto. But you I, thought about it. I, well, I, I've certainly thought about it after the fact. Yeah. I think my experience of it in the midst of reporting these tough investigative stories, some of which are about other forms of corruption and yeah. cover ups, um, you know, but all of which have a streak of wanting to like, uh, you know, set injustices. Right. My experience inside those stories is is not to be conscious of that. You no, very much have, right, you have yeah, blinders yeah. on. You're working incredibly hard. It's yeah. about a specific fact pattern that's not related to any right. of that. Um, and also, there's a real quality within me that cuts in the other direction, meaning I am just cynically searching for the biggest, truest, best story. You know, um, you know, the, hopefully not cynically, also the one that does the greatest good, but but also just on a career level as a journalist, like I want the big scoop, right? Yeah, right. So that often is the overriding feeling I have rather than like I'm, uh, yeah, I'm avenging yeah. childhood injustices. But but yeah, I think it's fair to say that that if nothing else, those events increased my understanding of the way in which the deck is stacked against women, against victims of abuse, uh in favor of the haves and against the have-nots. I mean, you see in the Woody Allen allegations, not just uh, the systemic injustice of sexual abuse, but also the cover-up culture, as you were right. alluding to. that Which is what your new book's about. Yeah, me. yeah. That that basically that happened at a time where, you know, if you had a powerful enough team of publicists and lawyers, if you could hire... Uh, an army of private investigators, which is now his attorneys have admitted on the record that they did that. They were, you know, going through the trash cans of the cops involved and trying to get the judge fired off the case. And um, it's something of a playbook that you see in these cases over and over again. And to your point about timeline, even that became something that was manipulated where, 
there was a PR offensive, you know, basically uh, a physician had reported that my sister was saying he had touched her. Um, and then he turned around and called a press conference and said, well, I'm in love with and sleeping with the other daughter who's legal. And, and, so that and was a distraction? It was It was a manipulation of the timeline to, okay. su- to suggest that. And then after that, you know, there was a, a custody battle. But basically the narrative became, if you look at a lot of his interviews, there is the, either him or his surrogates, there's a suggestion that there was a custody case and it was bitter. And then, uh, you know, my mother raised an allegation of uh, sexual abuse about my sister, the younger yeah. sister that he was... Uh, that she she somehow programmed your sister to believe... The pro- well, right, and that's a whole other conversation, this uh, this idea of, you know, programming or implanted memories, yeah, which is, yeah. there's, in the actual literature, people are very dubious of it. Yeah. Um, and certainly, look, I was around in that setting, and I can tell you, my mom's role in this was, she ultimately did the right thing, standing by my sister, and that's moving and important, because yeah. um, there are a lot of kids in that situation who don't have that. But I can tell you, it's not like she was a cheerleader for it. You know, yeah. Every time this comes up, the blame the mother response is one of the easiest cudgels to Where use. Where were you? That kind of thing? The, the, how does it blame the mother? Well, well, more, itself? more. you know, this is brainwashing by a oh, disgruntled, right. uh, yeah, a yeah. woman scorned. It's yeah. the woman scorned argument. Oh, you oh, see it so over in and over divorce, again. In a yeah, divorce, ex- right, right. Exactly. So, right. And, which doesn't make any sense, right? Because the, the allegation uh, through this doctor, yeah. not something my mother reported, was the precipitating incident. Um, but there has been this effort to manipulate the understanding of the timeline to suggest there was already an ongoing custody fight and therefore these allegations were raised. So how, but the opposite is actually Right. True. How is your sister okay? Thank you for asking that. She's great. So, so the plot of Catch and Kill, the book, yeah. deals with this intersection yeah. of motivations. Um, it, it had to because Harvey Weinstein tried to use this against me. It shows up in all his legal threat letters. You know, he had an allegation of sexual abuse in his family, uh, so he can't be impartial on this issue, which is just, you know, you ask any journalist about this and it's just ridiculous. Ronan Farrow has uh, a sister who, you know, accused a guy in Hollywood of sexual abuse. Therefore, Ronan Farrow is uh, biased. He can't report on sexual abuse issues, which is not how conflicts of interest work. That's crazy. It's it's truly bananas. but and then you unfold. You revealed all the 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 ex, you know, the the Mossad guys he had working for him. And yeah, everything else. I every re- story I report on, I get all kinds of ridiculous below the belt stuff thrown. At me. It's very personal doing these investigative stories because the first response is destroy the reporter. When you're really like in a story that is going to make an existential difference for someone's life, and it, and in that case. Um, you know, I can honestly say, I mean, it's too silly to even really respond to legitimately, but Harvey Weinstein was someone I only had an incentive to like and suck up to. Yeah. You know, I, I had had passing cocktail party interactions with him that were perfectly pleasant yeah. and heard kind of what everyone else had heard about him, which was he was larger than life and had a temper and maybe some sort of casting couch stuff that there was, right. you know, tradition of starlets having to put sure. out for parts. But yeah. I had not heard any sexual abuse allegations until I started reporting on it well when you okay so i i'm gonna like go sideways a little mm-hmm. bit here just in terms of how how you assess this stuff because you know i it, it just it seems like even in talking about republican senators now that when people are like you know what kind of men are these and these are these are people 
that want to be near power, that want to you know feel power, they may not have the power on their own, and they're terrified of whoever the fuck they're working for. Because mm-hmm. like really, the question becomes like once you identify the monster, who are these people that surround and insulate the monster? Are they just doing it for money? You know, I I mean, what do you find when you think about that? You know, one of the reasons, depressingly, that it the book has this like save the cat screenplay structure is there's all these supposed good guys, right? The the executives at a news organization who are supposed to defend the story. And when you have a tape of a famous guy admitting to a serious crime, because I uncover this police tape where right. Harvey has admitted to stuff. But, you know, they killed that story, the NBC executives. And then you see people like Lisa Bloom, you know, this woman's rights crusader yeah. attorney who had actually been a guest on my MSNBC show talking about the perils of protecting powerful men in Hollywood right. and decrying people like Bill Cosby and, right. and even writing op-eds saying, yeah. it's, you know, dissecting my sister's claim and saying she is absolutely credible. There's there's the evidence here. Yep. And then you see her letter on the, her name on the bottom of a legal threat letter directed at me as a, as a lawyer representing Harvey Weinstein uh, making this crazy argument that I was brainwashed, my sister was brainwashed, none of which was really germane to the reporting, but it was an attempt to kind of shake me up. It's a good illustration of uh, this question you just posed. Power seduces and fame seduces. And we have all these conversations where my sister has said, if you can trust anyone, it's Lisa Bloom. Yeah. I need legal advice. I mean, I'm an attorney myself, but not a practicing one and right. not in this area. So I needed legal advice from people who deal with these kinds of non-disclosure agreements because yeah. many right. of my sources had yeah. these NDAs and they were terrified to talk. And so I you know, w- turned to her, Lisa Bloom, for advice. And uh, she did not disclose that she was representing Harvey Weinstein until those threat letters arrived months later. So and she was like a double agent? She was a true double agent, really pumping me for information and not being straight with me about her motivations. And eventually she said, I, I, I have a conversation with her where I say, Lisa, you promised me you wouldn't tell his people if we had these conversations. And she said, well, Ronan, it's a really awkward position to be in. I am his people. He optioned my book. And... You know, I don't know how uh, you what is the, like the moral <laughs> integrity of anybody. It's it's a, a bit of a scary uh, series of rabbit holes to go down these stories because there are so many people who aid and abet. Well, also, it seems like everyone's so fucking self-centered and narcissistic that it, it really becomes about that more than it's no sense. You know, whatever their personal morality is, they, they somehow have managed to rationalize that they're they're not infringing on that. Yeah. Because, you know, they have to think about themselves first. Right. It has to be that. You, you know, they don't think they're evil. It's like, hey, this is my job. This is the way it works, man. Right? Yes. What happened at NBC is a great illustration of what you're talking about. Um, the president of NBC during these events is a guy named Noah Oppenheim. So he's a major character. And I quote these conversations with him where he says almost word for word what you just said. You know, okay, we have this tape. We have this. We have that. But we got to decide, is this worth it? Mm. Is this really worth it? And, you know, you end up with a situation where people don't realize it is their job to stick their neck out. It is their job to identify this is as a matter of principle. And, you know, that for, for that guy, Noah Oppenheim, there's a soliloquy he gives at the end where he calls me after this is starting to become a scandal for him and says, you know, please, if you ever have the chance to tell people, I wasn't the villain. It was everyone. It was my boss, Andy Lack, who's, you know, the yeah, head throw of the everybody under the uh, It was bus. Steve Berg. It was yeah. this guy. It was that guy. And the, the problem is when you have a chain of command of people, at any kind of institution, news or otherwise, 
where they all have that attitude. It's, it wasn't my job. It was someone That's else right. had they're to stand all the, Half of what they're thinking, half of their job is figuring out how to squirm out of something when the shit hits the fan. Yes. Who are they going to blame when it goes down? And I've had so many, since the book came out, I've had yeah. so many conversations with other top executives <laughs> yeah. who were at NBC Universal at the time, you know, the parent company. Yeah. Part of the process is it follows the cliche pattern of like the shutdown of the story and the insider, you know, the CBS big yeah. tobacco story if right. you ever saw sure. that movie. Yeah. Uh, where it gets kicked up to the parent company. Yeah. The lawyers are all ready to go for comment to, right. to Harvey Weinstein, and then the, the president of NBC News says, no, 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 we got to go to the parent company. So it goes to the parent company, and the head of the parent company, NBC Universal, is at the time Steve Burke, yeah. who has since been shuffled out in the last few months. But so many senior executives who worked with and reported to Steve Burke yeah. have, since this book came out, told me, like, this is absolutely true. He was just openly at that point saying, I'm getting all these calls from Harvey Weinstein. We can't run this thing. This is a shit show. And then, you know, on occasions where they'd say like, well, is it true? He'd say, he'd like, look at them like they were crazy. Like, what do you mean? Is it true? We can't run this thing. I'll, I'll never hear the end of it. Harvey will be calling me like this for a year. Oh, poor guy. I, I've heard this from so many different people who worked with him independently. And, and it gives you a lot of insight because what you say is exactly true. Nobody thinks it's their responsibility. And they don't even have enough of a sense of being forward looking to think, Someday that'll look bad. They're just openly saying, like, this is not worth the trouble. But, well, I think that, like, you know, this idea that the foresight or that someday it'll look bad to who and to what and where will these people be then? It's like we live in a culture now that moves so quickly. And it sort of dawns on me as you're talking that the, the litigiousness of, like, even the current administration sort of guarantees a sort of lawlessness for a certain class of people. I mean, that seems to be what all these lawyers do is that, you know, that it's like this whole idea that, you know, a rule of law shit is all very negotiable if you have enough money yeah yeah and, and that the rule of law only applies to people that can't afford to defend themselves and if you have the money to continue to litigate you're probably going to get off somewhat the, i mean this is a, a fundamental imperative for me in reporting these stories over and over again you see how if you've got enough money and enough connections and you can pick up the phone and make those annoying calls you can evade accountability in the press. You can get the story killed. You can get the the criminal charges dropped. I mean, the, this situation in 2015 that I ultimately uncover uh, where the cops had a, a tape of Weinstein yeah. admitting to this, yeah. to an assault. And then Cyrus Vance Jr., still the DA in Manhattan, dropped the charges under a huge amount of pressure from Weinstein and an army of PIs. That's like that's the story of American class warfare, right? All these uh, kids going to jail for minor drug offenses while Harvey Weinstein, when there's a recording of him admitting, gets off again and again for years. And the, yeah, and you have lawyers that are proud of this, that you know that it isn't about you know professional ethics or morality. It's about winning. Yeah. But let's go back to like the the evolution of of your investigative co journalistic career. So, so you grew up in this household where, you know, by the time you're seven, your parents are split up. You're in the middle of this custody fight. There's a lot of other kids in the house. You know, you, you, you're developing, I imagine, the, the sort of mutation of your relationship with your father and whatever you can handle at seven must be fairly confusing and bizarre. Or were you just sort of isolated in your mother's house? And how, how did that work? How did the, the like, how did it unfold? You knew what happened to your sister. You heard what happened to your sister. You're too young to necessarily understand it. So how do you grow up? Well, my mom took the approach of basically just trying to shield us as much as she could. So she didn't talk about it. I think she knew that anything she said would be picked apart 
And in who's the in the house at this time? You and Dylan and what, two or three uh, other? It was usually like six of us at any given time mm-hmm. at home. Um, and, you know, my mom did, I think, a smart thing of moving us out to the Connecticut countryside. Yeah. So we were like on a farm. My school life was great. I started skipping grades really early. I went to college at 11. I know. What is that about? How does how does one figure that out? How do you get, a, you know, an undergraduate degree in philosophy at 15? Yeah. What, I mean, what kind of... <laughs> Not, I didn't mean to be sound resentful. But no, I mean, like, no, I mean it's it's a, but, it bonkers. I I was a big nerd. I was bored with my grade level work, and um, I think there was also uh, a strain of ambition behind it. Uh, you know, I, I think a collision of things. I think the turmoil of my childhood, uh-huh. um, uh, f- being very conscious of the fact that. My mom had not only the strain of that situation to deal with, trying to hold a family together right. under assault from uh, a really monstrous set of tactics, yeah. uh, but also had these adopted special needs kids who were, you know, I have a paraplegic brother, um, several blind siblings, uh, lots of learning disabilities in my family. Um, so everyone required a huge emotional investment from her and and also um, isn't that interesting though you say that she doesn't have addiction but there is something completely engaging about the need to feel needed and to engage you know with that much selflessness is almost a compulsion it's interesting yeah i mean i i don't i don't think that there's uh, that analysis is without merit i mean i (laughs) i think you know she would she would say that she was truly trying to do whatever she could with the resources she had to do what was right for the world for the um, world, you yeah, know, in her own little way. But like, you know, what of herself did she sacrifice, and how much of that was altruism, and how much of that was avoidance? Yes, I mean, <laughs> I, I think probably like she she's definitely someone who's rooted in an era where, um, like, psychotherapy, like sure. the old fashioned term was was uh, a, yeah. like, like quackery, you know, like a set like a seventies kind of view of of. Uh, oh, really? She therapy. comes from that a little bit, and I think like because you would think with the hippie thing, she would have been all in on you know any. Sort well, but of that's experience. a little bit pre like the great renaissance of analysis, right? Oh, so Isn't you're it? saying the mid seventies? Yeah, I mean, I, I think something your father constantly harped on. Well, right, and yeah. I th- I think also the fact that she you know spent a long time with like a, a famously therapized criminal, basically. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right? Um, probably didn't inspire much confidence in the institution, but I, I, I <laughs> yeah. think that you're like I'm certainly a believer in seeking whatever kind of mental health care sure. is appropriate for you, and um, I think there's probably a deep reservoir of uh, what all of the stuff my mom has been through <laughs> through the years. Uh, fascinating character, really. yeah, fascinating, fascinating person, <laughs> um, and a profoundly good person and a, a good actress too. A wonderful actress. Yeah. People are so excited whenever she does any work. I'm trying to get her to work more. Yeah, um, you know, she was saying no to things for so many years because she truly, I think, the experience of being just smeared over and over again in the press by a, a guy who was desperate to deflect from these allegations. Um, really did isolate her from the industry for a long time. She felt like she it, just had to retreat. It's also interesting that the guy who married his daughter <laughs> is somehow, you know, worthy of, of of kind of like, sort of like, let's listen to what he has to say. Oh, yeah. He was the only one with a microphone. And it's there's this strange... And com- I loved him. You know, like, I, I'm saying sure. it's hard for me. That was the other part of, you know, your, your upbringing and my experience. Like, you know, Woody Allen was my hero. Yeah, I and, get it. And you know, and it, and it took a long time to integrate the reality of what this was about for I mean, for me as a guy who respected the guy. Yeah, yeah. No, I completely get it. And look, I come face to face with this a lot. 
Um, there, his fans. There's a there's a little niche of like Woody Allen super fans who literally just they live on the internet and they just haze my sister all day. They're just set, you know, the the worst misogynistic slurs you can well, imagine. Well, does she not? I hope she doesn't engage with that. I try to tell her to not look at that Why stuff. You can't look at that. I shit. know you can't. You're but, smart. You're smart not to. But it, it it is an interesting thing, and I see it in various fan bases. I see it mm-hmm. in the Michael Jackson fan base. There's almost a um like a flat earther uh, subset. I right. mean, when you really have. Uh, someone who you idolized and and tied to your own identity in a in a very specific way, I I understand it can become really painful to acknowledge the the possibility right. that that person might be complicated well, that, and might have done bad things. And also that that borders on sort of a belief system trip, you know, like you know that th- you don't know that person really, and your belief in them or your relationship with them is completely uh, unreal. It's and totally got, abstract. It's abstract, but like the human heart and mind needs to feel part of these people. They 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 deify them. It, it is exactly the same instinct that leads us to religion. Sure, and right. and I get it. I'm sympathetic to it. But look, I'm actually but, yeah. A, but these are human people. They're human people, and mm-hmm. and I I think that I'm actually a great example of those tensions because look, I I more than any super fan would love to not buy <laughs> my sister's allegations and have a much simpler relationship with this part of my history. Yeah. Um, and, you know, tried to, to shrug it off for, for years. And you did? Yeah. And, and that... How so? Uh, didn't want to... Never talked about it publicly. Uh, but, I mean, with her. Tried to, tried to kind of reduce it to... I could joke here and there about he married my other sister, but, like, not really touch the, the more serious So was it because you had not... You know, connected with your empathy for your sister, or it was because it was easier to look the other way, and therefore I get the fans looking the other way. Well, when did you sort of like you know get fully on board with with her? My understanding of the importance of this kind of reporting on sexual abuse is informed by I reassess my relationship with her allegation. I was kind of cornered into talking about it. Uh, the Hollywood Reporter had run like. The de rigueur, they've been doing it for years because there's a sycophantic profile of yeah. Woody Allen. You know, he's right. this adorable ne- right. nebbish. He hates to give interviews, et cetera, et cetera. Right. With like a truly ridiculous, it's this guy who I, I won't throw him under the bus by naming him. He's a nice guy in other respects. But he had also in the same time frame, like right just before the Harvey Weinstein allegations come out at a time when everybody knows the Harvey Weinstein jig is about to be up. He writes this uh, article called Harvey Weinstein, the comeback kid. Mm. Aren't there more reasons we should love him? So in the same time frame, he all, this guy also writes a Hollywood Reporter story uh, uh, about Woody Allen, yeah. basically lionizing him and kind of framing my sister's allegation when it gets a brief mention as like, how great that he's overcome this adversity, um, which was a real standard way of writing about people credibly accused of these kinds of crimes for yeah. years and years. And it was an interesting sign of how the the cultural moment was changing that people didn't let it fly. There was suddenly this whole like the Jezebel set, you know, the the Jezebel feminist was important. Yeah, the feminist bloggers. There was an intellectual conversation among feminist that's bloggers right. about, you know, how victims are treated. That's right. So yeah. so there was a lot of anger directed at the Hollywood Reporter, which at the time had a, a woman editor, Janice Min, uh-huh. who I, I think very highly of. So she actually called me and said, look, we want to address this kind of critique head on. 
um, I think it's valid. Would you write something about it as both a reporter and someone who's connected to this case? So, and up to this point, you had just kind of how compartmentalized your sister's struggle, Com- or compartmentalized it. I was had, she calling you saying like, "Why don't you help me?" It all several things happened at once. That was happening with the Hollywood Reporter kind of cornering me into talking about it in a more fulsome way. Yeah. Um, I he had started receiving lifetime achievement awards, right? And that was I think the Golden Globes was one of them. A couple yeah. of the places okay. gave him these awards, um, where this was not mentioned, yeah. and all, all these stars were giving him standing ovations. Right. And my sister was upset by this, and so I had started talking to her about it anyway, and uh, had started even like tweeting light references to it, like, "Hey, maybe but, this is." But I guess my question is like, before this, yeah, you know, you guys didn't talk about it. No, I mean, it's not. I and think you're only two years apart, right? Yeah, but it's a horrible so thing. So she that, wasn't talking about it to anybody. Right. And she was dealing with the... I mean, she she maintained her claim consistently. From when year, she was seven. Yeah, year after year after year. And whenever it came up, she would talk about it. But it's not like the kind of thing you hang out at home and No, but I mean, about. but no, I get it. But so well, I guess my question is, Throughout those years, you were just dealing with her her eating disorder and her yeah. and her psychological problems. She was self cutting, but is... knowing that it was because of this event, N- knowing but not thinking on it as deeply or compassionately as I should have. Mm. You know, right. she has some situation with him. Something I'm sure something happened. She's a profoundly honest person. She's been consistent, but like, let's not peel back the layers of that onion because. Doing so meant that it, I couldn't just shrug it off as a joke and, oh, my, my father married my other sister. It it meant actually a much more serious thing, which is, oh, let's look at the evidence. So that didn't happen until this happened? Yeah. Until 90, or how? what year was that? 2014? Around that? Really? So, so you know. The, the Hollywood Reporter op-ed was, I think, 2016. And, and, then, and in the two years leading up to that was this all this bubbling up of the award ceremonies, her frustration. Bear in mind, at the same time, there's all this broader cultural stuff happening. The Cosby stuff yeah. keeps bubbling up. Yeah. That Hannibal Burris joke happens. Yeah, right. So uh, kind of a confluence of things happen. And I actually, I think there's a fair case to be made that my sister coming forward with her claim again, she, which she with did- With the letter. Right, in 2014. And it's still a fascinating illustration of an early point in this transformation because it wouldn't have happened the way it did if it were to occur again today. Yeah. Uh, the New York Times didn't run her story right. through the traditional channels. Uh, the LA Times had like fact-checked it and vetted it and was going to run it. And then the leadership people at the LA Times- uh, descended on the editor of the LA Times, right. who then actually called me, just journalist to journalist, and was like, look, I'm under all this pressure. We can't run this thing. I I believe it. It's true. It held up in the face of this vetting, but like, I am I am getting calls that I just, I can't. Right. So Nick Kristoff ended up kind of pasting it in like the middle of a blog post. Nick Kristoff, this yeah. great yeah. Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, sure, sure. who has, I think, a similar sense of his reporting should be to the end of social justice like basically broke through the institutional resistance of the times and just put it up on his yeah, blog. Right. And it was this huge shitstorm and the times turned around and gave Woody Allen like just endless space in the print edition to just slag off her, my mom, all this not fact, fact check, just an opinion piece with a giant picture of him holding her as a baby, like very traumatizing in many ways, not a way a journalistic outlet would behave these days, just to let someone unchallenged. But, you know, he had a long relationship with the New York Times. He's New York. He's New York. And they did a a really shameful thing there. 
And a, a lot of outlets just functioned that way. They would give, you know, barely and grudgingly space to an accuser yeah. without the, the platform and then all the space to the, the accused. Right. All right. So so going back, so you were up in Connecticut, you're in the country, you're being a genius. It's <laughs> clear to your mother that you're accelerated. You know, you get into college when you're 11. Y- yeah. So I, the... I had been going to like nerd camp, basically. Right. Johns Hopkins runs a program where you can be a kid and take and college what, courses. What were you accelerating in? So early on, I tested in a way where I was supposed to be good at math, which yeah. I no longer am at all. I can like barely calculate the tip now. Sure. Um, and I kind of didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I loved math. I loved reading. Um, I started taking all these science courses yeah. through that accelerated learning yeah. program, the Center for Talented Youth, it was annoyingly called. Um, but you had to take the the SAT to get into that. Yeah. And so I took that a couple of times early on and got the kind of score where people were like, all right, well, just go to college. Right. Um, and I had already started uh, skipping grades anyway. Right. So I was kind of already a little disconnected from my social set that I would have been in had I been lockstep with people. And I sure. remember having all these conversations with my friends, like gathering a summit um, with my closest friends when yeah. I started skipping. I had already skipped kindergarten and then I skipped, I think, like fifth and sixth grade. I skipped a couple of grades. Just by on. testing out? Testing out and complaining a lot about yeah. being bored and right. wanting to read more. And I was already taking all of the high school credits I needed at the local high school like a half time kind of skipping out on my yeah. grade school stuff. Yeah. So it was already, I, I was already out of sync a little bit, but I, I did sit down with all my friends and said, Hey, I'm going to skip yet again. I'm going to do this. And they were smart kids. So it was a funny meeting where I remember my friend, Rebecca diamond, who's mm. wonderful now a doctor yeah. uh, saying like, well, I'm a little jealous of that. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I want to be skipping. <laughs> yeah. And also like, what's that going to do to your social life? Which was right. a very fair question. Thank you, Rebecca. <laughs> right, sure. Um, so, but I did it. And I think that's, you know, to, to go back to the observation I made before, I think that's a combination of sincere uh, intellectual drive and being a little bored and yeah. wanting to engage in that the higher level coursework. And also just relentless, like, bottomless ambition, like a yawning chasm that I still have still yet have to that. fill. For sure. And, you know, I think if you look at the combination of the turmoil, of the pressures my mom felt with my other siblings sure. who well, demanded yeah. so much of her, yeah, I, yeah. I think there was just an impetus to be easier and more successful. And, um, you know, she very infrequently got to have, uh, you know, children with the traditional framework of success like for a lot of my siblings just holding down a job is is, of any kind is a success uh you know taking care of themselves is a success right and you know those are people i love and care about and i'm so proud of them for that but dylan was not that person dylan was not that person i mean dylan had the other challenges of dealing with the trauma of this but Um, you no one really put that together I, I don't know that I can say no one put it together. It was something that I think I didn't consider deeply enough. Well, you were, until you were focused on yourself. I was focused on myself. And I, and I think uh, there was a sense in which this like, go, 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 you know, be a six, hyper, hyper successful in a really distinguishing way that is going to stand out so from you, everyone else w- was partly born of, I need to be, um, you know, uh, the successful one. I need to be the easy one. And, and but maybe, also the successful one. You need to, uh, you know, make your mother proud. Yeah, on but, some uh, level. Well, but. and I, I think also that you know, there's a uh, theory in like gay lit that sort of like the the 
uh, what is it called? Like the best boy in the world theorem you know, uh, that, yeah. Oh, yeah. that uh, you know, that, that <laughs> yeah. these gay sons, uh, you know, become hyper successful because they they have to compensate for they're not going to be alpha in some traditional way, but they're going to be alpha in these other ways. Do you buy into that? I don't know. When but, did you know you were gay? Uh, well, uh, you know. I try to avoid like the easy terms because it gets it gets into a real hotbed of still evolving conversation here. But oh. like, well, I mean, I I'm had relationship. I had relationships with the guys early on, and yeah. you know, knew uh, that I was I was very sexually aware early on. Yeah, um, and was lucky to grow up in a liberal enough setting where I felt like I could kind of bring home whoever. So right. I had relationships with the guys. I had relationships with the girls. Right. Yeah. Um, but I I do think like that doesn't fluid. Make it, uh, maybe I, sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I would. I, would I don't say, know what the words. Are, I would put it this way. I, this is where I'm old. Well, this is the problem. Like <laughs> I, I don't know the words. Yeah. I don't want to get canceled. But I would say that I, I would like for my children and grandchildren for them to be able to fuck everybody. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And and uh, you know, even though I think I was very fortunate to grow up in a setting where um, I, I could be fairly free in my sexuality. Uh, it, that doesn't make it easy. I think the, no. the story for anyone who's any kind of queer yeah. um, is a little bit of a story of it, it has ripples in the rest of your life. So, yeah. so I think all of those things probably feed into this sort of relentless drive and unwillingness to stand still. Right. Yeah. Okay. So as an undergrad, it said you, you study philosophy. What, what can you understand at 11? I mean, emotionally, what are you really taking in? How are you functioning? Well... Yeah, I mean, I I apologize to all of my classmates at that point. I actually I I just had dinner with a, a friend that I was in biology class. I was actually I was I started as a bio major and like did my first concentrate. You had to kind of matriculate into yeah. a major there and do a, a piece of thesis research to to pick a major. And I actually I did a bunch. I did like I did biology and then I did I did philosophy. I did political science. I couldn't yeah. sit still. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, but I just had dinner with a friend that I was in those first biology uh, courses with, who remains a, a close friend. My, yeah. my buddy Carrie and. Um, I was saying to her, like, God, I must have been so annoying at that point. <laughs> I must have been just so annoying. A 12-year-old? Yeah, 11, 12, 13-year-old. And, and um, was, was, I don't know. I, it's a, I'm too close to myself to judge what I was like. But I will say that um, it was between Bard and uh, another like very large, uh, prestigious university yeah. at that point. And my mom was really insistent that I go to a small school. Yeah. And I think that really paid off just as moving us all to a small town kind of insulated me from, I was well, never I, a I imagine kid. that the other students were a little more considerate. They were mm -hmm. wonderful. Honestly, yeah. my experience, I, yeah. you can be the judge of how messed up I am by all this, but right. I had a great time. I loved it. I loved the schoolwork. I yeah. loved the intellectual banter. I loved the people. They were very caring and sweet. So uh, to me, that was like a wonderful and healing and, and fulfilling experience. And you found that you were able to sort of emotionally kind of grow? And those are like, I just like, what kind of, I keep bringing up philosophy. Like, yeah. what did you study? Like, what the hell did I know about existentialism at 11? Uh, well, I mean, I know there's a process to anything. You can learn anything. There's, you know, if, if it's taught well. Well, I actually did a lot of work on um, ethics. Oh. I did a lot of like Kant and uh -huh. I did, I, I did a, a dissertation that was, um, or a thesis that was about the intersection of uh, foreign policy and ethics. This like is undergrad? Col colonialism, yeah. Undergrad. Okay, so that, so that was sort of the drive. So that was sort of like the, the kind of, uh, the, the sort of uh, service-minded trajectory that your mother kind of lived for. Yeah, I'd say that's right. I'd say I, I yeah. kind of, I took up that baton a little bit. And then you went to Yale Law School with the desire to be what kind of lawyer? 
So I think I was one of those Yale Law people that people in the legal profession joke about that like didn't, knew I really didn't want to be a practicing black letter lawyer pretty early on. Um, the, the joke about Yale Law is always, it's an extraordinary place. I feel so but wait, fortunate wait, to have wait, gone I'm there. I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. but, but before you went to, I'm just trying to get the, the timeline right. So you got involved be, be in between undergrad and mm-hmm. graduate school. You did, you did other work, right? You Yeah. So I you got into life. Yale Law. <laughs> I deferred for two years. Right. And in those two years, I worked for, I started working for Richard Holbrook, uh, who was the former uh, UN ambassador and kind of this storied diplomat. Doing what? I was, you know, I actually started interning him for him earlier, before that period, yeah. like last year of college. Yeah. At which point I think- At 14. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. actually. Okay. and. And uh, he was like a roving foreign policy advisor for yeah. the Kerry campaign at that point. So it was, you know, everything from fetching coffee to drafting speeches to like organizing, you know, outreach events for the campaign and getting together foreign policy calls with him and Madeleine Albright and stuff. You were doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. At 14. I mean, it was intern work, but yeah. It was, but it was mostly foreign policy I was like, stuff. I was a college senior. Yeah. So it was, I was a pretty standard internship for a college senior, but obviously not standard for a 14-year-old. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> and then, you know, so I, I worked for him uh, during that period. I did actually other uh, volunteer work for the UN. I was a UNICEF spokesperson and uh-huh. went to a couple of African countries. And What was um, that like? Fascinating. And also something I have to credit my mom for because she had really, she by that time, she was spending a ton of time in refugee camps, still in does. In Darfur? Yeah, she really became passionate about Darfur. I ultimately went to Darfur and like began writing op-eds about Darfur, including op-eds about the use of sexual violence as a weapon of war yeah. in Darfur and like interviewing these women who had been raped in Darfur. Um, uh, horrible, horrible stories. And if you look at some of my early Wall Street Journal op-eds that I was writing during that period, they're they're kind of of a piece with like the Weinstein story and some of these later stories I did, being genuinely intrigued by the systems that support injustice. You know, the idea that there can be an entire uh, regime using rape as a weapon of suppression. Shamelessly. Yeah, at, just at, like as part of a military strategy, right. basically. Just right. a part of how and they it operate. it has, has been for years. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so then from there you end up working in, how did you get the job at the Obama, in the Obama administration? I ran into Hillary Clinton at a, an inaugural event, and she had gone to Yale Law as well. Yeah. Um, and probably with a similar. Oh, so you so you were you went to Yale Law. I went to Yale Law, and you did it. So this is after you this worked after. in government. That's right. So so you did two years off. You did uh, the work with Holbrook, uh-huh. and you went to Darfur, and you wrote some op-ed pieces. But then you you went back and you went to, I went law, to school law school for four years, two years, so three years, three years. Yeah, and then you graduate and. And the, what I was going to say about Yale Law before yeah. is that the joke about Yale Law in the legal profession mm-hmm. is like they turn out all these incredible law professors and Supreme Court justices, but like lawyers, lawyers. (laughs) which is totally not true because some majority of every Yale law class goes into big law. But but what was your intention? It clearly wasn't to be a corporate lawyer. Right. But I I do think that that stereotype, however unfair, um, informed my love of the place. You know, I wanted to go to a place where I could take a ton of international law and like property is an optional course. Tax is an optional course at Yale Law. No, understanding the the law in this country is just worthwhile, I think, just as a thinker about these problems of injustice. And, you know, I did things like I, I worked for the uh, the immigration clinic at 
Yale Law, mm-hmm. um, which does wonderful work. Like if anyone ever wants so to like support So like pro bono them. work. Yeah, they do basically, you know, for uh, clients who can't afford a, an attorney, uh-huh. there are student lawyers who are actually like allowed into, into the courtroom. And mm-hmm. one of my cases that I helped with was... Uh, a case under the Violence Against Women Act, where actually a, a man who was in an abusive relationship was having his immigration status threatened by his abusive spouse, mm. um, and was like, you know, appealing, trying to get get out of her attempt to get him extradited. Yeah. Um, so interesting cases and ones I felt kind of fulfilled by, and yeah. I, I totally could have seen practicing that kind of law, uh, and have a lot of admiration for my friends who went down that road and yeah. are making very little money doing important <laughs> legal right. work. So, okay, so you go through all this. You meet Hillary at the inauguration. She's ex, she's a Yale graduate, and, and she offers you a gig? Yeah, I said to her, you know, I've been, like, writing these op-eds, and I'm graduating. I had met her a couple of times over the years. And this is when she's Secretary of State? Before. I think she had been she had been just announced as Secretary of State. Oh, okay. But not, so, I mean, this, right. is, this is literally inauguration. Yeah, night. got it. Um, and you know, obviously this, I'm conscious of the fact that like, this is not a normal experience, like running into Hillary Clinton at Vernon Jordan's inaugural ball. Um, (laughs) and she knew that I had worked for Richard Holbrook, who she had a long relationship with. So she said, uh, we'll talk to Holbrook. Like we're building this Afghanistan team. He's about to become the Afghanistan, Pakistan envoy, which I think had been maybe rumored, but not announced at that point. Uh Uh-huh. Um, so then I ended up starting on her advice, a conversation with Richard Holbrook and yeah. I had done this work in the NGO world and he wanted to have a position on his team. He was going to be the envoy for that region. Yeah. Um, and he wanted a position on the team that was about liaising with local human rights groups. Mm-hmm. So I headed off to Afghanistan basically. How long were you there? I was, I, I say headed off. I mean, I was there intermittently for two years in Afghanistan and Pakistan, um, but also in D.C. a lot of the time. So I, I cannot claim to have really been in the trenches. I was like, you know, in bunkers, deep inside embassies on and off for two years. And so how do you change course? How, when do you realize that that world and that life is is not what you're going to pursue? Well, I came out of that experience. I was at the State Department for probably four years, three years, four years, and came out of that experience. I was on the AFPAC team, and then Richard Holbrook died in that last job, Mm -hmm. and I went on to create a a little office under Hillary devoted to youth issues, and I was like the youth envoy, and that was more of a global role. And I came out of that experience with a tremendous admiration for foreign service officers, Mm. civil servants, and people who are in that lockstep system and devoting their lives to making our embassies function and yeah. being the first line of defense when it's screening people who are going to come into the country and um, being the, the first line of uh, offense when we got to get people out of a country, you know? Um, they're the people you call when you're, there's yeah. a hostage situation right. abroad. Uh, and, and they're the people who make our deals to keep our country safe. Yeah. So that ended up being the genesis of uh, that book, War on Peace, you yeah. know, that, that we do a disservice... Uh, across multiple administrations to these public servants by uh, not giving them the resources or authority that they deserve and the spot in the decision-making rooms that they deserve. Uh, And also in our culture, I think we do them a disservice by not telling stories about them. Mm. You know, we we have a million spy thrillers and a million dramas about the military. I don't know that most people, including myself, really know the day-to-day work of... uh, 
of a of a, a diplomat yeah. or even an ambassador. Well, Mark, I've got a book for you. It's called <laughs> War on Peace. It's your book. <laughs> and, it's, it. and it's about the day-to-day work of diplomats and ambassadors. Um, <laughs> but that's all of that Let said. Let me write that down. <laughs> yeah, write that down, folks. <laughs> all of that said, I I, uh, I don't think I had the stones to like live that life of 20 years of lockstep pay and progression. Because you, had to, and, you got, had to answer to your ambition. Because I had to answer to my ambition. Honestly, I think that's the truth. I think like I am not a good enough person to, to be the guy <laughs> at the embassy for 20 years. <laughs> it do, apparently, if you're one of them now living in this administration, it doesn't pay off. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, God, am I grateful for the people who are sticking it out through this administration, but a lot of them have left and I think it's really hard and a lot of them feel conflicted about it. Yeah. So, okay. So, so then how do you shift gears? You you look for a job in television? No. So I left the state department and then went to do a Rhodes scholarship at Oxford. Oh my God. (laughs) Because it's it's just out of control. The, the ambition thing, I guess, but, but also it's it's weird though, but you still took it to the academia. Well, well, so a couple of things. One is, you know, I loved the experience of like the Doogie Hauser phase that we talked about, but it did mean like I wasn't doing a lot of keg stands at the point at which people usually do that. Because you were 12. Because I was 12. Yeah. Um, And (laughs) I wish I could claim to have been a super cool 12 year old, but I had like a bowl haircut. Right. Well, you were, you were like one of those, like you were, you must've been just sort of a, a kind of obviously an anomaly, but to these older kids, they were probably sort of like, wow, look at this little wizard. You, you know, they probably were like, as opposed to being snotty to you, you, you were a freak. I, I'm, yes, I certainly <laughs> continue to be a freak and a nerd. I, uh, they were very tolerant of me and patient. All right, so now you're old enough to appreciate a Rhodes Scholarship? Is that what you're trying well, to tell well, me? Well, no, more than that, I, I think I, you know, got out of government and I wasn't sure what I want, wanted to do and uh, felt a little disillusioned, honestly. I think even not being on the front front lines. I mean, I was like... Disillusioned with yourself? No, disillusioned with the world. I think anyone who spends a a couple of years working on Afghanistan and Pakistan issues and like, you know, Mm -hmm. spending various stretches of time like living in a tent at the ISAF base with all the military guys, like you really... Or in a hooch at the embassy. Those are those little, like the shipping containers that you live in when you're there. The... And seeing how how cordoned off you are from the outside world and how just misbegotten the whole endeavor is and how many people are dying around you. You do feel the weight even when you're in those civilian roles of like just war gone wrong. And I think I wanted to run away from it a little bit for a while. Sure. And... And then on top of that, I you know I had this uh, accumulated weight of lack of keg stands mm-hmm. and a uh, uh, youth th- that I wanted to recapture, I or, guess, or have, R- or have in the first place, <laughs> right? Totally. Um, and so you know I was in this very unusual position where I'd been in the workforce for ten odd years, but I actually was still under the age threshold for the the roads you can only apply up to 25 uh-huh. so i was i was could still do these scholarships and i figured like why not go back to school and be the same age as people for the first time oh yeah um and i can like write and maybe i'll write a phd that turns into a book right was my at the time i thought brilliant plan yeah. of course that did not happen at all i ended up in <laughs> crazy deadline panics years and years later oh really where the book had to For come your out first and then the dissertation came out much later oh really you wrote your dissertation after you wrote the first book uh-huh 
I, I got it completely backwards. What was the I dissertation? Just, I screwed up the process <laughs> so much. Uh, the dissertation was uh, about uh, the relationship between America's use of proxy armies, so foreign militaries and militias, and uh, the concept of political deception. And the basic idea that I argued was the more we lie about these relationships with proxy forces on the ground around the world internally within the government decision-making process, but also to the public as an act of political theater, the more we lie, the more costly the relationships ultimately become, both like fiscally and also in terms of the number of people that get killed and how much we fuck up these situations abroad. So it was very much rooted in the Afghanistan uh-huh. experience. Right. You know, the the archetypal example being I embedded with General Dostum, who was the head of the like horseback, sword-wielding Uzbek warriors that we paid and gave guns to to, yeah. to route the Taliban right after 9-11. Right. Yeah. So like I hung out with that guy and yeah. looked at like, okay, all of this time we spent inside the government and outside the government calling him a hero while he was like secretly filling up mass graves. Uh, how, where did yeah, that get and, us? And, and also like eventually I imagine uh, fortifying his own tribe, getting involved with uh, the opium business and what have you. That guy is a trip. By the time I- Is that I, true though? I'm just speculating. Oh yeah. Oh, totally. <laughs> Your speculation is completely correct. Um, and by the time I ended up hanging out with him, uh, he was like really in declining health and um, he was always rumored to be an alcoholic yeah. and he definitely seemed out of it. Like he always had a cold where I couldn't see him until 10 p.m. And, yeah. and then there'd be like, you know- dancing boys and martial arts competitions in his in his chambers and <laughs> yeah. um he had like grass everywhere and reindeer in his in wow. his suite um yeah. he's a he's a colorful guy but but also he he'd drink some unidentified fluid out of like a, a rhinestone encrusted chanel mug uh-huh <laughs> yeah he claimed it was tea i should say in the interest of fairness uh-huh. but i it seemed like it was booze of some kind oh, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know wow um, so how'd your dissertation land all right uh yeah so actually funny that you ask uh i finished it last year so i was working on all of this it's crazy i'm so Just last bad year. at planning it took me seven years. Just shout out to any long-suffering PhD student because yeah. I was working several jobs. I did my MSNBC show. I I kept going back, you know, even during the Weinstein yeah. story to England to kind of kiss the ring and talk to the Oxford Dons, and they'd be like, "We hear you're on television every day in the states," and I'd be like, "Well, while that is technically true, my main passion <laughs> is proxy armies, <laughs> and I'm going to finish this thing. I promise." And they'd be sort of skeptical but but god bless them tolerant and i did finish and i went and i did my oral defense while i was in the middle of the catch and kill book deadlines last year and now i'm going in may to do it so oh, I'll, wow. I'll graduate so does your mom go to this graduation i i will have to see i i think that that's like the one thing she's going to want to go well she went to the pulitzer <laughs> she oh, was that made her happy that's but big huh? I, th- I think she'll go i think she'll she doesn't fly a lot no i keep i flew her out i kind of twisted her arm into saying yes to Elle magazine did a like women of the year thing mm-hmm. last year. Yeah. And I said, come on, you have to do it. It's you and Shonda and Charlize. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. just do it. It's yeah. amazing. Come yeah. on, you'll have fun. And <laughs> she'd been so kind of isolated uh, by all that horrible yeah. Woody Allen stuff that she honestly, she said to me, like, do you think people are going to boo me? And I'm like, what is wrong with you? Like, you're <laughs> beloved. Everywhere I go, people come up to me and say, like, your mom's a hero. Uh, so and she went. 
she did. I got I got her to go, and it was great. So yeah. now she's like coming out of her shell more. She's, she's oh, that's flying so more. sad. So I think she'll fly so, to England. Uh, so uh, traumatized by all. I know, I know, and you know, it's a way we treated a lot of women who talked about difficult issues for a long time. I see it in so many of my sources too. You know, <clears throat> all of these actresses. You know, Annabella Sciorra, Mira. I Sorbino. worked with her. It was heavy. You know, I worked with her on Glow. You know, she mm. played. Uh, you know, uh, a past relationship of mine. I did two episodes with her, and it was weighing on her. I mean, it was, and now she's involved with the trial, and like it was, you know, it was all pretty. It stays fresh, and and yes. once you know, once they they do start to be heard, it it's it's hard not to be re-traumatized and to speak through that. I think, and you know, we're in a moment where I think we're doing a lot better at not just buying sight on scene the narrative of people accused of these kinds of crimes. Um, including the part of the narrative that involves smearing women who have come forward, uh, which... It's such a reflex with the most, I don't know most, but a lot of men. It's yeah, a reflex. of course. And, and, I, and, how, and adjusting that reflex is, is that's part of the challenge. It's a big challenge, and I think while we're doing better at sort of holding up and lionizing these women who yeah. come forward and do this difficult thing, and, you know, I, I think the moment of increasing celebration around my mom is yeah. part of that. I think the, the I've been so relieved to see that people like Annabella and Mira and Rosanna Arquette, so many of my sources have, have been widely celebrated. Mm. Um, there, there is a deeper structural thing that I think is harder to change, which is, okay, we're going to pay lip service to celebrating them. Like you want to hire them? <laughs> you know? Right. P- people who are in charge of these decisions. I, there's a couple things I wanted to like get to that mm-hmm. I think will lead to the book. So how did the MSNBC thing happen who did how did how did you begin that relationship with uh you know phil griffin i went off to england uh and i was there for a year doing coursework and then uh and found by the way that i was unable to capture any lost youth i was having worked and like been off to war and whatever like far too boring and right um, adult in not fun ways to to actually like right right you can't go can never go home yeah yeah I was kind of, I was in a relationship by then I was just way too yeah. adult it was, it was done yeah was, yeah no no kegging for no you. kegging for me <laughs> yeah uh, so I was never cool I, d- I determined conclusively that that ship had sailed yeah and then you know I I continued to write yeah. and do print stuff mostly yeah. sh- more short form commentary yeah. Wall Street Journal op eds etc. And I got called in. I think the chain of conversations, as I was told it, that happened was uh, the Today Show uh, leadership team wanted to call me in uh, for a job interview. And then Phil Griffin, who uh, runs MSNBC, kind of stepped into the process and was like, I want to talk to him. Uh, So I came in for a meeting, not really knowing what was going to come of it. And uh, that led to me doing a show for a while on MSNBC. But, but isn't that interesting? You have this amazing resume, of, you know, of of you know not only occupational experience mm-hmm. but intellectual experience. And then he decides that he wants you to be the Anderson Cooper of MSNBC. That that to look at your resume and go like, you got to be a talking head on this on MSNBC. So that's actually insightful, and I think uh, was a was a root problem, was an original sin with that particular configuration. Look, I'm so grateful that Phil gave me that shot. And um, I'm really proud, actually, of what we turned that show into by the end of it. it I say, But it the, didn't work out. Yeah. I say in the, in the book, like, it got, uh, you know, terrible reviews at the beginning, great reviews at the end, uh, and no viewers throughout. And on the one hand, that's just 
midday cable is a brutal wasteland. And sure, there's no of such, course. There's no yeah. such thing. There has right. never been a hit 1 p.m. Yeah. <laughs> cable show. It's, yeah. it's not a thing. But on the other hand, you've hit on something that is real, which is like I constantly was trying to cut against the grain of that. And when we yeah. got the good reviews, it was because I was just saying, fuck the ratings. I'm going to run a 20-minute taped investigative piece on opioid overprescription at VA hospitals. Like I'm going to go out really, in the field and Oh yeah. So once you started but that's I that was my question is that once he sort of moved you into that investigative segment and once that became your thing, was that really the beginning of your career in that type of journalism? Yeah, it was it was uh me being realizing the truth that you just said of like if you if you care about the issues you don't really I say this with huge respect for the people who are excellent at being yeah. talking heads and reading the headlines. Yeah. It is. I learned because I put in the years becoming a good broadcaster. Like it takes time and yeah. it's a hard, it's a dying discipline because yes. TV is going away and changing into other things, but it's a hard one. You really have to train to be like good on a morning network show. Yeah. Um, so I say this with all respect, but, but for me as someone who was invested in the issues, I was constantly trying to like, do more in-depth writing than is feasible for a once-a-day yeah. breaking news show that is going to get blown up by whatever headline is happening, right. you know, during the White House press conference. Anyway, um, I was constantly trying to do a lot of tape stuff that required me to run around the country all the time, and that's how I ended up building a relationship with the NBC investigative unit, which yeah. is chock-a-block with wonderful journalists who are mostly behind the scenes, right. investigative producers. And it turns out in television, especially at that point in time when there was a little bit of a feeling that investigative was dwindling or not in a moment where it was having a, a vogue. Um, it was hard to get that stuff on air. So there were all of these deeper uh, threads of reporting where there'd be a piece and they didn't have a correspondent, they could get to front it, and they didn't even have a show that would want to run it. And I started putting that stuff on my show and going out and, and being the investigator for those stories. And so when my show was canceled... Uh, I ended up transitioning to a job as a, an NBC News investigative correspondent full-time. And Noah Oppenheim, the guy who I mentioned, who was running the Today Show then and then shortly after was the president of NBC yeah. News, uh, was the person who gave me that shot. I mean, he he said, like, we love this taped investigative stuff you're doing for the Today Show, which I was kind of dual-hatted. I was doing both the MSNBC thing and the Today well, Show. Why don't you continue? Well, I mean, my question is in terms of, like, you know, TV investigative reporting is that it, it, it struck me because of a conversation I had with my producer that – that when your story got spiked, the Weinstein thing got yeah. spiked by NBC. You know, you you talk about Universal getting involved, and that guy getting involved, mm -hmm. and Oppenheim. You know, having both of them saying like, "Yeah, this is going to be crazy," and and on the higher ups, the Universal guys are like, yep. "He's never going to leave me alone." But wasn't there also a tremendous fear in TV investigative journalism of lawsuits? Oh yeah, for sure. And I'm I'm sure your producer would be very familiar with it. Uh, so in any journalistic format, including in print, there's a legal review process that happens because, you know, we all look at examples like Gawker getting sued into the ground um, and outlets get scared. And actually, one of the tactics Harvey Weinstein used was he hired Charles Harder, who was the lawyer who led that Hulk Hogan Gawker case that right. destroyed that website. But like print has has a little more lead time and longer window, right? No, to you know... This was lead time was not an issue in this case because it was a story that I worked on at NBC for the better part of a year and passed all sorts of legal reviews. It, it, in this case, I think something else is happening, which I think maybe also informs why the statement from your producer yeah. is true. 
print outlets, while they very often have parent companies of various kinds, yeah. do something that is less expensive and therefore uh, tend to be less entwined with their parent companies. Mm-hmm. And because of the level of expense involved in television reporting, mm-hmm. they tend to be like, you know, the the crown jewel in the Comcast empire, you know? Yeah. They, like NBC has changed hands between different corporate overlords. But in every era, it's a situation where like the bosses are not completely firewalled off. Yeah. And that's what leads to the situation in The Insider. It's what leads to the Weinstein story at NBC, where Steve Burke is telling everyone, like, we can't do this thing. <laughs> you know, what I told this repeated yeah. from those executives. I'll never hear the end of it from Harvey because he's a movie studio boss, too. Right. And I think it's all an illustration of the the legal panic is not actually rooted in sincere legal arguments. It's It starts there, and then it becomes inflected by the business and relationship panic of a parent company that has mostly non-journalistic interests. I mean, the the news business is a tiny portion of what Comcast has to care about. So you can see how a guy like Steve Burke, who had a background running theme park gift shops, who is not a journalist, and who has to balance a lot of different equities, is someone who was legendary for saying in these situations. I recount a bunch of instances of it in the book. Um, you know, why Why wouldn't you kill the story for this guy who's calling? Like, he'll owe you afterwards. You should kill it. Um, and, and that is something that makes TV journalism uniquely challenging because it is much more uh, overshadowed by those parent company relationships. And I think it, it stresses the absolute need for better firewalls between the news divisions and the wider corporate ecosystems they sit in. Yeah, because it's completely detached from what it's supposed to be servicing, from the idea of the fifth estate, right? Yes, and it's it's scary from a news and democracy standpoint, right? right? Because yeah. th- these are some of the main platforms. NBC News is a great uh, legacy news institution that a lot of people rely on when they watch that evening broadcast. You know, there's still an old-fashioned set of people who well, and, care and, about and these platforms. And also now, right, and, but there's also a set of people that are, or who watch something they think looks like the news and now are being completely propagandized. Yes. And mind fucked. And, and now the idea of truth is nebulous. Yes. And that that is the philosophical underpinning of the book, which I write from the standpoint of being someone who profoundly believes in the free press as something that is vital to yeah. protecting our basic rights that's enshrined in the Constitution for a reason. It's the only constitutionally protected profession explicitly, you know? And there's a reason for that. And I I write about the ills in the media world and the ways in which powerful and wealthy people can manipulate the media um, because I sincerely believe in the great work journalists are doing at NBC and elsewhere. So important right now. Yeah, and believe they should be unfettered by that kind of interference. And, you know, NBC is a great example of how the journalists are great in these cases because they, one after another, stood up and called out their bosses and demanded an investigation and leadership change, none of which happened. Because you have, you know, a parent company that is not invested in the journalism. So you wound up with a crazy situation where Rachel Maddow was getting on her own company's air and saying, I've independently confirmed the stuff in this book. There needs to be an investigation. And then just nothing. They won't do it. So it's a fascinating example of a much wider problem. That was about the Matt Lauer situation? Both. The killing of the Weinstein story and the Matt Lauer situation. 
And, you know, I think that thankfully in this case, I had enough of a platform and enough of an investigative team around this that I was able to break that story out in the open. But so often stories are killed and we just never learn about it. And sometimes people continue to get hurt as a result. And to your point, not only do people get hurt when abusers are shielded by news companies like this, but also the concept of the truth and its vital role in our democracy and electoral process gets hurt. You know, I come at this from the perspective of a journalist who loves journalism. And the book is like a giant celebration of how journalists have broken through these obstacles. But it's fascinating how that same narrative and set of facts has been embraced by the conservative press and especially the very, very far right, like the Breitbart set that like this is just another example of fake news. It confirms the Trump narrative. And that's frustrating, and I think the only way we overcome it is by cleaning house in our, yeah. in well, our they journalistic outfits. They appropriate the language and terms and, and structure and then turn it in on, on itself and then throw it back at us. That's, that's right, and, the, and the, they're not, look, they're not wrong. It is a, a disheartening example of the failures of the news media, but it also, the fact that it ultimately broke, the fact that the New Yorker took on the story and blew it wide open, all of that, reminds us that the press possible. it is possible the press is by and large still doing its vital job it is and, and i think the lesson for me is uh, let's not cut down and excoriate the free press let's build it up and support it and make sure that these great legacy news organizations are transparent and are breaking the stories right. they well, should be right i mean the people actually churning out lies fake news um you know, it, we need to lean on all of our platforms, the social media companies, no, yeah. to root that out and identify it clearly. I think keeping ourselves to a really high standard at mainstream news outlets, including NBC, including yeah. CBS, all the places I've reported on, is really important yeah. for reminding people, like, hey, by and large, yeah, though there are screw ups, this yeah. is an important organ of our democracy. Sure, and also like, but also the idea that you know, clickbait and, and emotions and things that connect to your emotions. You know, it's never that simple, man. Yeah, you, you know that if you're not going to read past the headline, yeah, you know, how would you expect to be, you know, informed? Well, I, I see great examples of this all the time. So one of the uh, little subplots in the book is my relationship with Hillary Clinton, yeah. which uh, kind of frayed around the Weinstein reporting. Weinstein, she was very close with Weinstein. Weinstein was one of her big fundraisers. Yeah. And I had to interview every Secretary of State for War on Peace, yeah. the previous book, sure. which I was in the middle of during the Weinstein yeah. reporting. And she had agreed to an interview. She, I had talked to her about the book from very early on mm-hmm. and, and developing the concept. She had but she knew what you were up to. Yeah. So right. I get a call at a certain point from her PR person yeah. who says, you know, we know you're working on this big story. We're concerned about it. Yeah. And they did indeed continue to work with Harvey Weinstein for months after both like just he was an advisor around her and also they were going back and forth about a potential documentary about her, like right up until the 11th hour before the stories broke, um, there was email traffic. Yeah. You know, they knew pretty early on and then suddenly she became unavailable for that interview. And I finally had to say like, hey, that wasn't off the record and I'm going to have to give an explanation for why you guys canceled. And that felt weird to me. And they did, you know, I have to say they got a, it wasn't the sit down that had originally been discussed, but they got a quick, slightly nervous phone call on with her. And, you know, she didn't have to do that. She owes me nothing. And she did do, give an interview for that book. Um, so those are, that's the totality of the facts there. And yeah. and look, there's a, there's a thoughtful conversation to be had about what powerful people in politics knew about Harvey Weinstein and their failure to distance themselves early. 
in Hillary Clinton's case, there are other factual things that are interesting. Um, Tina Brown says that she warned Hillary's campaign at one point. Lena Dunham says she warned them. I've talked to another journalist who earlier that summer in 2017 warned the same PR guy. Like, why are you letting her do photo ops with this guy? This story is about to break. All of that is interesting and valid. But I, I lay that out and then I start to see, you know, the Breitbarty fake headlines, which are like, you know, Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, ordered Ronan Farrow to stop reporting. And it's like, well, there's valid criticism to be had of, of Hillary on this. I say this as someone who has, a, a, I think, a very full view of her and admires many things in her legacy. Um, but it is important to talk openly about uh, how politicians deal with people who give them money. Yeah. And and how that is used as a shield. Are you doing that with Epstein now too? I did break a story about Epstein's relationship with MIT. That's very yeah. much in the same bucket of themes yeah. that they were sending all kinds of emails saying basically like hide this Epstein money long after he was convicted. So so that's all a valid conversation. But my point is it gets distorted so quickly. And by the fourth iteration of the headline, it's like you know basically Hillary Clinton hired assassins to you know to, to kill me. It's subtle and it demands and deserves a real conversation about the facts. But it can't happen because the alt-right headline machine turns it into something that is so distant from the truth. But, you know, you did sort of, uh, you know, everything, all the work you've done, you know, outside of getting Pulitzer's sort of like shifted the cultural dialogue, which, you know, is a profound thing and, it, and it's a real accomplishment. And I think you had a lot to do with that. Well, I, that means a lot to hear. And I, I end up saying this till I'm like hoarse in the yeah. throat, but it it really was these women who rose up. Sure. Um, and, and also now a lot of men who have talked about sexual abuse, frankly, and in a brave way. I had Terry... Uh, uh, yeah, Bruce I heard that interview. Yeah, yeah. It was a great interview, and yeah. he's a fascinating guy. You know, thank God there were, in every case of a story I reported, whistleblowers and sources willing to come forward, people willing to turn over tapes and yeah. documents and bare their souls in some of these cases. And we wouldn't be having the conversation without them. Yeah. Well, thanks for doing the work. Now, just quickly, let's not get too far into it. Do you have uh, any sort of hope or faith in the survival of the Republic? <laughs> oh, just a small, small kicker question there. Uh, yeah, I do. I do. Because, you know, I taught. So the podcast is is winding down now. And, yeah. and the last couple of episodes are about Trump. Yeah. Um, they have some new reporting about Trump in there and, and particularly the kinds of deals he cuts and yeah. the ways he was part of this system of suppressing stories, the hush payment reporting that I With did. With American media? Yeah. The last episode... Uh, is about uh, one of those hush payments. It has a really fascinating interview with Karen McDougal who talks about this in a way she hasn't been before. Um, And a lot of like tapes from within the process of him trying to shut down that story. And you come out of... That's the Playmate story? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And you come out of reporting on uh, this sprawling empire of like filth and blackmail and killing stories that is the National Enquirer. And you really do feel disillusioned. And there are times in the reporting where it seems like those systems of oppression and silence are immovable. But to your question, there are also so many times that remind me like the whistleblowers aren't going to stop. The sources aren't going to stop. The reporters, and I'm not talking about me, there's a whole wide community of reporters that have encircled each of these stories and and made them come out into the sunlight. They're not going to stop. And so I I actually come out of all of this with a sense of optimism. I really think that as long as we keep thinking and talking about this and making sure we all as a culture care about defending the hard truths, 
we've got a fighting chance. Great. I'll hang on to that. <laughs> you seem unconvinced, but... Well, I'm, I'm cynical and I'm a whiny guy. Um, I like it. It's a good look. Thank you. Thanks for talking to me, Ronan. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. All right, that's that. There you go. Ronan's book, Catch and Kill, available wherever you get books. Catch and Kill, the podcast, available where you ever get podcasts. Uh, also, my tour dates, the four that are coming up, the last few before I start... Tape and Glow, you can, you can go to wtfpod.com slash tour for venue and ticket information for the Portland, Maine, New Haven, Connecticut, Providence, Rhode Island, Huntington, New York shows. Um, and don't forget, Mark Marin, End Times Fun, will launch globally on Netflix Tuesday, March 10th. Now, I got a... Slowly moving the guitars out here, but I haven't got a wire to get the mic over. Maybe I do, but I also bought a mic for my harmonica because I, I hadn't picked up the harmonica in a while, and... And I've never owned a harmonica mic, so if I can get the mic over there, maybe I'll play a harmonica through an amplifier. Huh? Again, not unlike my guitar, I'm very limited on harmonica, but it sounds cool through the amp. Hold on, let me see if I can do it.